Thank you, Jordan, for uh, leading us and bringing those wonderful thoughts from the Word of God already, which we're going to continue doing this morning. And it's a joy to be back in this section of the Scripture this morning. But like Moses, you know, um, at the burning bush and at Mount Sinai, we this morning stand equally on holy ground because the Lord, the same Lord speaks to us through his word. So let us all bow our heads and hearts in wills and submission and reverence to what the Lord has to say. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we long for you to speak to us, but we thank you that we can come into your throne of grace with boldness and at the same time we come with reverence and humility. Teach us, we pray. Soften our hearts. Change us with your word. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Continuing on in our series this morning, and for your benefit, I have actually put the second command up on screen, but you can open your Bibles as well because we will be referring back uh, to this certain text. But I would just like to read that uh, for you. We'll start at verse 1 and we'll read through the end of verse 6 just for the sake of context. Verse 1 of chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Command number 1. Verse 4 is command number 2 or beginning of it. You shall not make for yourselves any idol or any likeness of it, what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. I'm sure God will add a blessing uh, to his word this morning. As we have seen from chapter 19, God's law in chapter 20 and actually right through the end of chapter 24 is specifically given to his redeemed people for the purpose of knowing him so they might know how to live their lives and in their daily lives to exalt the Lord and in their daily lives give witness to the awesome and gracious God that he is. We read specifically of that in chapter 19 and verses 4 to 6. And from that text we saw that the law of God, or as we call it and as we know it, and as Moses calls it later on in this book, the Ten Commandments, it was not given as a ten-step plan to win or earn God's favour like many in our world and even religious world think of it as today. But God gave these ten words as it's referred to to his redeemed people so that they might obey them in worshipful gratitude as a response to him for his saving and redeeming grace. So these ten words are built upon, they spring out of God's redeeming grace. Experienced by Israel, of course, when he redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt, and experienced by us here this morning 
as we have been delivered from sin's penalty in believing the gospel of God's grace for salvation, which we've already heard about this morning. In other words, God's free saving grace is always received before anyone can obey these laws in a way that pleases him. It's never the other way around, like people so often think of. As we also saw, these laws were eventually written on two tables of stone. We have that in Exodus 9.31, verse 19. And on the first table were the first four commandments revealing our duty to God. And on the second table, God wrote out a further six commandments revealing our duty to one another, our duty to mankind. But this morning, our attention will be on the second commandment. And we will see that it deals with the way a believer should respond and worship toward the Lord. But first of all, this command requires that we understand what it really means. We need to understand what it really means. Now, these first commandments, when we read over them quickly, kind of all joined together and they are related to one another, but they do address two separate things. In the first commandment, God has said, you shall have no other gods before me. We saw that in verse 3. And in saying this, what he is telling us is that he alone is God. He is above all else who we are to worship, as Jordan has been focusing on and bringing to our attention from the prophet Isaiah. The first commandment teaches us that we are to have one true God, the God of the Bible, as revealed in the Scriptures. Meaning that there is nothing to be, there is to be nothing in our lives that should hinder or interfere or dethrone our exclusive worship of the God of the Bible. The second commandment builds upon the first, but in the second, God teaches how we are to worship this one true God of the Bible. That is, without ever making any images or likenesses to represent him in and for our worship. We're not to do that. In other words, the first commandment gives us the focus of our worship, whereas the second commandment gives us the fashion of our worship, can I put it? Or to put it another way, the first gives us the who of our worship and the second gives us the how of our worship. Now also in this command, as well as the rest of the commandments, I brought this out when we first looked at this series, there is a positive and a negative aspect to them. For we see in these commandments that there were prohibitions and also permissions, either clearly stated in the text or they're certainly implied, and that's okay. You may say, well, if they're implied, they're not clearly in the text. But they are clearly stated. For example... In verse 7, we are prohibited from taking the Lord's name in vain. And I would suggest that equally implies the importance of exalting and revering his holy name and only speaking of God and about God with awe 
and respect and a holy fear that he rightly deserves, right? So there is a, it's, it's implied in the text. But as we come to the second command, not only are we prohibited from worshipping other gods and making idols to represent the true God, but also is strongly implied in the second commandment, we worship the true God in the right way. Now, many believers, when reading this first and second commandment, dare I say, do not give these two commandments the due attention that they deserve. What we kind of do is we attach ourselves very quickly to the prohibitions or to the negative aspect of them and pay little attention to the permissions or the positive aspects to them. And the reason is that many of us have always believed in one true God and, and the idea or the concept of worshipping idols or worshipping some icon has never been on our radar, right? So we tend to skip over these two commandments as being somewhat irrelevant. Well, as I was preparing this message, it was brought to my attention, and you will remember it, Remember the woman of Samaria at the well where Jesus approached that well and he dialogued with her? Because he actually instructs this woman on this very issue of this command. Now this lady, as you know, although she had five husbands and the man that she was living with was not her husband and, and so she could have stepped back and understood that, well, Jesus must be a prophet. And so, uh, but at the same time, this woman was very religious, you'll remember. But she was convinced that correct worship was based upon being in the right location. Many people are like that today these days, you know. Wow, it's, uh, it's all about being in the right location and there's no difference from this woman. Because of, in her day, the Jews argued that God should be worshipped in Jerusalem. The Samaritans, of course, of which this woman was a Samaritan, she argued, or they argued, that God should be worshipped in the region of Mount Gerizim, which was near Samaria, in the land in the area of Samaria. And so she was confused with what Jesus said about this and when he confronted her on this. Now, she was sincere. She was sincere. She believed in the Messiah. She was convinced in her mind that God alone was to be worshipped. But, folks, she was sincerely wrong. She was sincerely wrong in how he was to be worshipped. And this is the main issue of the second command because this is what Jesus said to her, and I'll quote John 4, 21 to 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, folks, the second command is not just telling us to avoid idols. It's telling us that we are to avoid anything that will hinder the correct worship of the true God, and in this case, back in John, including special locations. 
And so Jesus teaches us, as he did that woman back in history, in his dialogue that he had, that his father is not a physical being, right? His father is spirit. He is spirit. God is spirit. In other words, he's not something that we can touch physically with our hands. That's what he's teaching her here. He is not bound up in created things like places or buildings or objects. He's not confined by such material things. Nor is he, and think about this, nor is he bound up in something that our clever imaginations and minds make him out to be. He is the creator of all, and he transcends all creation. That means he's above all. And because this is what he truly is, he commands that those who worship him do so in harmony. In a harmony what with? And in harmony with his nature. He is spirit. So we are to worship him in spirit and in, in truth. And when all is said and done, that is what this second commandment is telling us to do. To truly worship God in a way that he commands and accepts to truly worship him in spirit and in truth. So that basically gives you a little bit of understanding of what this second command is all about and its main concern. And uh, it's not so much about prohibiting you from worshipping the wrong God, but more about prohibiting you worshipping the, the, the right God in the wrong way. Okay? It prohibits us from attempting to worship God through material means. Now, a lot of this goes on in our religious world, of course, as you know. Uh, it prohibits us from worshipping God through false conceptions about Him, and thus the end of that journey is we fall into idolatry. This commandment prohibits any visual, pictorial, tangible, and even any self-conceived idea that attempts to represent God for us. That's why we don't have the seven stations of the cross in our church. That's why we don't have figures of the Virgin Mary or of some heavenly, supposedly heavenly saint plastered around our church or even in our homes in an attempt to represent heavenly beings. We don't have that. The reason being, any caricature, you got that? Any caricature of God, whether it be a mental picture or a tangible one, severely diminishes what is absolutely true. And that's why, folks, this command is so relevant for believers today. Very relevant. You see, folks, we live in a day, and you cannot argue with this, we live in a day where the idea of individual free thought is elevated as being the in-all, end-all, and equal to truth. And truth may be whatever you want it to be or whatever you think it to be. And this, of course, your idea, your free thought of who or what God is. That can be God, and that is God for you. But because of our sinful nature, and sad to say, often our ignorance of the God of the Bible, 
we can often substitute the Lord with an imaginary, comfortable God that suits us. That's certainly not a God of the Bible. You know, you might have heard people say, and I'm sure you have, and you know, maybe, maybe you've said it yourself here, so take this as a, a rebuke given in grace. You may have heard people say, I worship God as I perceive him to be. Or God, the God I believe in would never send people to hell. Really? Or the God I believe in, the God I, I, I love, is the one who loves everyone just as they are. Really? And folks, every time we ignore what the Bible says about God and then substitute him with an image after our own imagination, you know what we do? We call him a liar and we dishonor him. That's why it's real serious that we need to be studies of the Scripture so that we know who God really is, right? Because otherwise, there'll be just a vacuum up there, folks. And that vacuum never stays a vacuum. It's always filled with something, you know. It's filled with our own imagination, even when it comes to who God is. And so every single believer has a serious responsibility to know from the Word of God who God truly is. Otherwise, you'll be worshipping something that is not God. Because the real truth of the matter is nothing we create or imagine is worthy of him because he is above all things and that includes even our own ideas. To try and e to even try to create a, an image of God or, or the things of God like angels in heaven, etc. As I said before, only diminishes what is true of God and you know what it does? It robs him of his glory. And we don't want to do that, do we? We don't want to do that. And this only leads to what is repulsive to God. That we end up bowing to something that God is not. And that is nothing short of idolatry. I don't care what church, I don't care what man, what priest, what minister tells you what God is, if it's outside of what Scripture says, it's false and he's leading you into idolatry. The great theologian, J.I. Packer, wrote in his book, and many of you will have this book, Knowing God. This is what he said. Let me quote him. Imagining God in our heads can be just as real a breach of the second commandment as imagining him by the work of our hands. How often do we hear this sort of thing? I like to think of God as a great ar architect. I don't think of God as a judge. I like to think of him as simply as father. We know from experience how often remarks of this kind serve as the prelude to a denial of something that the Bible tells us about God. It needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. The point is simple. We must take our conception of God from what God tells us about himself, right? God is greater than any representation. He is beyond any mental image. 
Therefore, we are to understand God by his word and by his commands and nothing else. It is only through and by his word can we then worship him in spirit and in truth. Now then, number two, why we need to obey the second commandment. We see this in verses five to the end of our section today. first thing we need to see here is how God names himself. You go back to the text, you will see in verses 2 and verse 7 and verse 10 and verse 12 and here in verse 5 we'll see that God introduces himself as what? He says, I am the Lord your God, over and over he says that in those verses. I am the Lord your God. Now the name Lord is the most sacred name for God in the whole of Scripture. It's a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh. Okay? They even made that name Yahweh because it was irreverent of them to speak of the real name of God. And so Yahweh was introduced. And so this is God's covenant name. It's a name by which he, he revealed himself as the great eternal promise-keeping deliverer of Israel. This name Yahweh, this name Lord, is, is the great I Am of the Scriptures that we see that he told Moses when he was standing at the burning bush, who shall I say who has told me? Tell him, I Am. And we even see the I Am, of course, in John's Gospel, which... We're going to have a whole series on in June, God willing, when Steve Lawson is going to be speaking of, of five I Am's that Jesus used in John's Gospel. Great series, can't wait for it. And so the I Am is, is, is the reference to the Lord himself. But we also see another title that God used here of himself. He also called himself, is it just God? No, he says, your God. You see that? Your God. That is Elohim, or what it means here is the strong one, the one who has, has personally coveted himself to you. He says, I am. He is the God above all, and that God is our God. In other words, we belong to him. His redeemed people belong to him. He is saying to each individual gathered before him back there in history and us today, those redeemed by his grace, I am the great I am, I am for you. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Now, if you want something to boast about, folks, in this life generally, boast about that. That the great eternal promise-keeping God, the strong one, the one with omnipotent power is for me. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. Jeremiah said that. He says, let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me. That word know is the word yada in Hebrew, which is the same word that was first used when Adam knew his wife. There's an intimate association with that word. And because you know God intimately, he is for you. And you know what? He is jealous of that intimate relationship he has with you. But when we think of the word jealous, we often don't associate it with God, do we? 
This is because we see jealousy in our world and roundabout only in its negative trait and, and um, something that's suspicious and distrustful and, and wrongly envious of perhaps someone's achievement. But when God is described as a jealous God, because that's what this text tells us, it portrays the depth of emotion that God feels for his redeemed people. You see, folks, God is jealous of our devotion and affection. Why is that? Because it rightly belongs to him alone. In other words, God passionately loves his people and when we give our attention that he deserves to someone or something else, you know what? He is offended big time. His passion for us, his people, is provoked. Folks, God is jealous for our love and worship. Why is that? Most of all, because he is jealous for his own glory. quote J.I. Piper, he seems to be a fa- favorite theologian. Peter's already quoted him this morning. I want to quote him again. Piper is well stated, and I think it was the title of one of his books. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. A lot of truth in that statement, right? You want to glorify God? You be satisfied and content with him as he should be. He will not be robbed. God will not be robbed of the devotion and glory that belongs to him alone. He will not be. And this is what Moses warned the people of his day. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 4, he said this, Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord, your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves carved images in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. How many times does the Lord have to remind his redeemed people, Israel, that he is for them. And same for us today. So jealousy is a right and a good thing when it's provoked to protect what is rightfully yours, right? It's a healthy thing. It's a bit like the kind of jealousy, or the righteous jealousy, can I say, that a husband should have for his wife's affections. And, and the wife's jealousy for her husband's affections. That should happen. They are rightly jealous. Why? Because they are one. They belong to who? To one another, to no one else. Or put another way, how would you dads here like it today if your children went around calling every other man they come across dad? (laughs) You'd be a bit peeved, wouldn't you? I'm pretty sure you would. Jordan nodding his head there already. He's only a young dad. You'd be a bit peeved. You'd be offended. You'd be jealous. You'd be, you'd be provoked. You'd certainly give your children a good talk and you say, no, I am your dad. No one else is your dad. You belong to me. I belong to you. I am for you. No other man on earth is for you as I am. That's what God says to his people. In the same way, God is characterized by a righteous jealousy. Because we are rightfully His. We do not belong to another as we have already seen. We've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20. God's jealousy is an emotion that is provoked when anything we do or say or think competes with our pleasure and our understanding of Him. 
folks, God is righteously jealous for your wholehearted love and devotion. For my wholehearted love and devotion. And as we know and we've thought about already, he has given us his beloved son in order to deliver us from our sins and, and he's imputed unto us his righteousness, the double cure, and he brings us to himself and he is therefore jealous of our affection. Now, that's reason enough to obey the second command, right? But there's another reason why we should obey this command. And we see this because of the consequences of our children. Or for our children, I should say. Now, when we read this, we, we see here that um, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here it goes, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Oh, wow, when we see that, we think about God punishing our children and our children's children for the evil that perhaps we have committed. We say, God, that's unjust. How unfair is that? God's not an unjust God. He's just. And to understand this, once again, you've got to dig into the text. If you just read that text alone, you'd be lost and you'd be all astray and you'd have a false understanding of God. And so we must see from Scripture that this is, God does not mean what we think, that He's unjust, that He will unfair, unfairly punish our children and our great, grandchildren and our great-grandchildren for something that we did and they didn't do. The Bible clearly says in 2 Chronicles 25 and verse 4, this is what it says, The fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers, for a person shall die for their own sin. And for a further in-depth commentary on this whole idea that we've just uh, looked at, you need to go to Ezekiel chapter 18. It's full of it. And in summary, chapter 18 says in verse 20 of, uh, of Ezekiel, it says here, The person whose sins will die, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, not the father, nor the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. So what is also made clear here from this passage in Ezekiel is that God punishes those who follow the example of their forefathers. You got that? That's what it means here. But it's also made clear that those who turn away from the sin of their forefathers will be blessed. Now, that's good news, right? That sure is good news. Therefore, can I suggest that this punishment or this visiting of iniquity that we have in our text comes because our disobedience, you got this, parents? Our disobedience makes it more likely that our children will follow our example and also sin just like we have. Now, for that is a dreadful and a terrible legacy to pass on to your children and your children's children. You would have to agree. Wow, what a responsibility. You see, this is all about the negative and harmful influence someone can bring on their children when they live in opposition. The word is used of hatred here because anyone who opposes God, God makes no bones about it. You hate God and love sin. It's all about someone who brings on their children the punishment that they receive because your children have followed in your example, by breaking the first and second commandment. 
So you parents here this morning, and can I say grandparents as well, we're not exempt from this. There might be some great-grandparents here, I'm not too sure. You're a great-grandparent yet? You are. Okay. Oh, yeah, we are, just about. Yeah. And so, um, because our example that we give here on keeping these commandments, you know what, it will have a powerful influence and a consequence on how children respond as well. It really will. You know, there's another word that's called this. It's called discipleship or nurture. Now, you could be a good discipler or you and could be uh, one who nurtures your children well, but we need to influence them and nurture them for the glory of God, right? I mean, that's what we need to do. Now, I'm going to quote you from an unknown author here, something that will sort of bring this home a little bit further for you, and, um, and I'm sure you'll pick up the thread of thought that I've got here. And I'm sure you've heard of this. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn. If a child lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If a child lives with ridicule, he learns to be shy. If a child lives with shame, he learns to feel guilty. If a child lives with tolerance, he learns to be patient. If a child lives with encouragement, he learns to live with confidence. If a child lives with praise, he learns to appreciate. If a child lives with fairness, he learns justice. If a child lives with security, he learns to have faith. If a child lives with approval, he learns to like himself. If a child lives with acceptance and friendship, he learns love in the world. A lot of truth in those sayings. And this is why the nurture of our children in the ways of the Lord, this is why bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord as we have in Ephesians 6 is of paramount importance. You see, God in His grace and providence uses your, uses our exampleship and influence to bring about blessing and glory for Him from our children and from our children's children. That's awesome, isn't it? Let me cast this application a little bit further. And perhaps it'll come as a warning. Again, receive it in the grace that it is given. If a child lives with superficial faith, you got that? If a child lives with superficial faith, he learns to view faith as insignificant. If a child lives with faith focused on experience, he will seek experience rather than God. If a child sees parents bowing down to representations of God, they will conclude that the representations are God. If a child grows up in a home where worship is not a priority, worship will be an option they seldom choose. If a child grows up in a home where God gets the leftovers, our children will give God even less. child grows up in a home where faith in God and Jesus Christ is separated from daily life, that child will conclude that faith in the Lord is completely irrelevant. Parents, grandparents, the tragedy in all this of visiting, of the visiting of God's iniquity is that he will punish the children of those who disobey when they, more than likely, more than likely, will walk in the footsteps 
of their parents. How tragic that consequence is. What a terrible legacy to be guilty of passing on. And so I say again, now sure, that has got to be a powerful reason to obey this first and second command, right? But praise the Lord, the opposite is also true. He doesn't leave us here. Because here we see a final reason, the, the one of promised blessing. And this is the positive side, can we say, of the warning that we've just read in this verse, on this passage. God describes his blessing as a showing or a, a loving kindness. That word is chesed um, to, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, what God's saying is here, he promises to bless those who love him and keep his commandments with undeserved and eternal and with a, a never-letting-go kind of love. That's what this love word means here, this word Hebrew word kesed. Translated in many of our Bibles as loving kindness. In the King James, it's mercy. But this word here is kesed, and it has this Never let go kind of love. That's a promising, that's a promise that we are blessed with, that we are promised. That's a blessing we are promised with. If we truly love and glorify Him as He is revealed in the Scripture, if we truly delight in God as He is, if we worship Him in spirit and in truth, if we love Him in this way, we will keep His commandments, we will faithfully do as He says. Yes, we will fail in keeping them perfectly because of our unredeemed flesh. No man on earth has been able, except for the Lord Jesus, to be able to keep the law of God perfectly. But we will never reject him if we truly love him. We will never reject him and turn to images and icons and be satisfied even in our minds with a God who is not the true God of the Scriptures. We'll never be satisfied. And folks... Look how God responds to those who glorify him in this way. What does he do? He shows his loving kindness. But note, his favor and grace is not limited to a few generations like it is with the iniquity of the fathers. He even states, you know, to your children, what he says, uh, on the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generations. That's a limit to that, right? But here, when it comes to his blessing, it's promised that his loving kindness is promised to extend to thousands. doesn't say how many thousands, just to thousands. And so what this means is it represents a far greater and an awesome impact if we keep the second commandment. Surely this is another good reason for us to obey and keep this command. We all want to be blessed like this, right? We all want to be... As the old hymn says, Lord, let me be a channel of blessing. And God can use us as channels of blessing mightily if we keep the second commandment. May we each one value the truth and responsibility of responding to our God with our worship of Him in the right way. That is to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we do bow before you this morning again. And Lord, we feel our inadequacy. 
Lord, we are guilty of knowing you as we ought. Help us to understand you more and more from the scriptures. Help us to increase our hunger for the study of the scriptures so that we might know who you are, so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. So, Lord, we pray for one another and we give thanks that we are your children and have that promise of eternal loving kindness, a love that will never let us go. Father, take us to our homes in safety. Watch over us, we pray. These things we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.